Hello, and welcome to the Perspectives in History podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you very much for listening, as always. In American historiography, the Korean War is often referred to as the Forgotten War. Often, those using this appellation do not seem to fully grasp why the conflict seems to have been forgotten. The explanation most commonly used attributes the lack of knowledge about the war to its timing, occurring as it did just after the Second World War and just before the Vietnam War, two conflicts that loom comparatively large in American public consciousness. However, for some time now, I've found this explanation, and the name itself, to be unsatisfactory. In what ways has the war been forgotten? In what way is the war remembered, if at all? And how does this perception line up with the actual truth of these events? These were just a couple of the questions that guided me as I researched and wrote this script for this series on the Korean War. In looking for answers to these questions, I am very grateful to Professor Bruce Cummings' highly insightful 2010 book, The Korean War, A History. In the introduction to his book, Cummings offers the following assessment of most Americans' perception of the war, quote, the conflict is construed in the United States to have been a discrete, encapsulated story beginning in June 1950 and ending in July 1953, in which the Americans are the major actors. They intervened on the side of good, they appeared to win quickly only to lose suddenly. Finally, they eked out a stalemated ending that was a prelude to a forgetting. Forgotten. Never known. Abandoned. End quote. In this passage, I believe that Cummings raises an important point the tendency of American historians to reduce the conflict in Korea strictly to the events between 1950 and 1953 ignores the conflict's long prehistory and its enduring afterlife. So, while this series will focus primarily on this three-year period, I will, in order to tell the full story of this conflict, attempt to recreate as complete of a history as I am capable of using the sources available to me. It is also my intention to cover aspects of this conflict that are not typically discussed in American-centric narratives. For instance, the colonial history of Korea, the highly destructive bombing campaign waged against the North, the experiences of prisoners of war on both sides, and the essential nature of the conflict as a Korean civil war. In chapter 3 of his book, Cummings elaborates on his thoughts on the Forgotten War label, quote, For years I rejected the Forgotten War rubric. The unknown war seemed to be much better, but for Americans, Korea is both a forgotten war and a never-known war, end quote. By producing this series of the Perspectives in History podcast, it is partially my intention to correct this error, to fill this gap in American historical consciousness. That being said, while most of my listeners are American, I am cognizant of the fact that I have many listeners outside the United States as well. Therefore, I have tried to make this series as accessible as possible to all audiences, regardless of nationality, because I believe that this is a story worth telling. At the risk of sounding repetitive, another issue that I have with the whole Forgotten War moniker is that the name does not accurately reflect the world historical significance of the Korean War. Understanding the Korean War is an essential prerequisite to properly understanding the two Koreas as they exist today. Similarly, a better understanding of the Korean War can give one a better conception of the history of the United States, of China, and of the Cold War in general. So, with all that in mind, let's move on. Before we jump into the narrative, there are some matters of housekeeping that I have to address. First of all, I apologize that the podcast was late this week. What happened was that the script for this first episode required a substantial rewrite that I did not begin to work on until Thursday. 
I apologize once again, and I will try not to allow this to happen again in the future. In other news, I'm pleased to announce that for the first time, this podcast has finally landed a partnership. The partnership in question is with Every. Every is an app that's purpose is to allow users to reflect on their goals and values and to create strong connections not only to the inner self, but with others as well. The app functions by releasing a new minigame every day that centers on a particular theme, be it problem-solving philosophy, interpersonal relationships, and so on and so forth. As the user plays this game, the app creates a visualization of their results and recommends specific media, books, podcasts, articles, etc., based on those results. The team over at Every have designed a game based on this podcast, and you can go play it right now if you wish. I will be sure to include a link to the app's website in this episode's description, from which you can download the app yourself. In other news, the podcast hit a couple of important milestones earlier this month. Generally speaking, the podcast surpassed 20,000 downloads total. I won't bore you with excessive talk about statistics or anything, but a vast majority of these 20,000 downloads, about 15,000 of them, came from the last 10 months alone. So, regardless of whether you're a new fan of the podcast or have been listening since all the way back in 2020, I'd like to thank you very much for listening to the show. Words cannot adequately express how grateful I am for your support. On a similar note, we've recently had a single episode surpass 1,000 downloads, the episode in question being the first part of the series on the Meiji Restoration. I have taken note of the popularity of that particular series as of late, and will consider that information in the future when I'm choosing what subjects to cover on the podcast. Speaking of which, I thought that it would be appropriate to discuss what I'll be covering on this program in the immediate future. At the time that I'm recording this in mid to late November, there are nine parts in the Korean War series, meaning that the final part is scheduled to be released on March 9th, 2024. That said, I actually haven't finished writing the script for this series. I plan to get that done during winter break this year, so the Korean War series could very well end up being one episode longer, or maybe even one episode shorter than I anticipate currently. In any event, I will keep you updated as soon as I have a better idea of where things stand in that regard. Once the Korean War series has concluded, I plan to start a new series of the podcast covering the Fourth Crusade. Funnily enough, the script for that series is also one that I have yet to complete, but I'm quite certain that it will be finished by the time I begin releasing those episodes. The Fourth Crusade series should wrap up sometime in late June or early July of next year, after which point I will be taking the usual hiatus during the summer. When the podcast returns in September 2024, I'm not really sure what I'll be talking about, but to give you an idea of what I've been working on recently, in the past few months I've completed a few scripts, one about Vlad the Impaler, one about the Congo Free State, and one about Pu Yi, the last emperor of China. More recently, I've been writing a script on the life of John Brown. Once I'm done with that, I just acquired a bunch of books about Cleopatra, as well as a few on the conquest of Mexico by Spain. I also have some incomplete scripts about the Marquis de Lafayette and the late Ottoman Empire that I also need to finish. I'm also strongly considering rewriting and re-recording the series on the Paris Commune that I initially released back in 2020. All this is to say that there is a wide variety of potential topics that the podcast could cover in the future. If any of the topics that I just mentioned particularly interest you, don't hesitate to weigh in on the matter. As always, you can email me or reach out to me on social media using the links in this episode's description. 
Anyway, with all that out of the way, let's get on with the show. Apologies for all the housekeeping. In order to tell the story of the Korean War, it's necessary to discuss the long history of Korea itself. Firstly, some geography. Korea is a peninsula in Northeast Asia, approximately 86,000 square miles in area. To the west is the Yellow Sea, and to the east lies the Pacific Ocean. To the south, a strait separates it from the Japanese archipelago, and to the north, two large rivers, the Yalu and the Tumen, effectively separate the peninsula from the main Asian landmass, and today demarcate the borders between North Korea and two of its neighbors, China and Russia. Today, it is estimated that the peninsula is host to a total population of about 77 million people, living in two different sovereign entities, the Republic of Korea, commonly referred to as South Korea, and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, more commonly referred to as North Korea. Although Korea is politically divided now and has been since 1945, it has historically been unified linguistically, culturally, ethnically, and even politically for much of its history. The Korean nation is an ancient one with the first unified state emerging on the peninsula in the 7th century CE. There is a tendency to, especially in older literature, to understand Korea as being subsidiary to, derivative of, or otherwise lesser than the other East Asian nations, that is, China and Japan. Although this notion has largely been dispelled, it is worth emphasizing that Korea, while deeply influenced by its neighbors, constitutes a separate and unique nation unto itself. Throughout much of its pre-modern history, Korea was heavily influenced by China. Chinese influence on Korea was largely benign, if not mutually beneficial. The Korean elite embraced many aspects of Chinese culture and paid annual tribute to the Emperor of China, and in return, the Korean state received official diplomatic recognition and protection from foreign threats. The diplomatic relationship between Korea and China was not unique. Throughout the imperial period of Chinese history, China commanded an expansive network of tributary states like Korea, allowing it to extend its influence throughout most of East Asia. With the exception of a couple brief interludes, including the Mongol conquests of the 13th century and the Japanese invasions in the 16th, Korea remained under Chinese suzerainty from the early days of Korean statehood until the modern era. By the middle of the 19th century, China, under the Qing dynasty, had begun a long and slow process of decline thanks to internal and external factors, both. As a result, Chinese ability to project power and influence beyond its borders waned. Meanwhile, Japan began to emerge as a rising power in East Asia. After Japan's ill-fated invasions of Korea in 1592 and 1597, a government known as the Tokugawa Shogunate came to power and enforced a policy of isolation. This came to an abrupt end when Japan encountered an American fleet in 1854, setting into motion a series of events known as the Meiji Restoration. Japan emerged from a decade of internal strife as a new state, reformed along western lines. If you're interested in this story, please consider checking out my series on the Meiji Restoration. Anyway, due to a confluence of several factors, including a desire to emulate and compete with the Western powers, Japan adopted a new and aggressive foreign policy, the object of which was to expand Japanese influence in East Asia. This inevitably brought Japan into conflict with the region's former hegemon, the Qing Dynasty, with this conflict playing out primarily in Korea. Through the decades of the mid-1800s, the two powers jockeyed for influence in the country, until in 1894, open war finally broke out. The First Sino-Japanese War lasted for a little over eight months, 
during which time the modernized Japanese military dealt the Chinese forces defeat after humiliating defeat. The treaty which ended this war, the Treaty of Shimonoseki, forced China to recognize Korea's independence, effectively removing them from the picture and allowing Japan to assert their control over the nominally independent country. In the ensuing years, a new great power would emerge as a competitor for influence in Korea, the Russian Empire. A relatively modern European state with a massive army, Russia seemed to pose a greater challenge to the Japanese than the ailing Qing had. Years of jockeying over Korea and Manchuria culminated in the outbreak of the Russo-Japanese War in 1904, when Japanese forces attacked the Russians by surprise at Port Arthur in Manchuria. Japan's victory against Russia in this war astonished Western observers, who believed that Russia's victory was a foregone conclusion. Russia's defeat gave Japan a free hand to increase their control over Korea. The country became a Japanese protectorate in 1905, and in 1910, Japan formally annexed Korea. All of this was done with the almost enthusiastic consent of the other Western powers, including the United States. The story of Korea under Japanese domination is an interesting one, but I doubt my abilities to do it proper justice in this episode alone. Some scholars consider this period to be inexorably linked to the war that broke out in June 1950, and argue that it is here where the true origins of the conflict can be identified. In older works about the Korean War, there is a tendency to elide over Korea's colonial history to some degree or another. Personally, I tend to agree with the former approach over the latter, so I will do my best to explain this history, or at least those aspects of it which are most essential to understanding the nature of this conflict. To begin with, I will state that this era is a highly controversial chapter of history, not only in both Koreas, but in Japan as well. To this day, the refusal of the Japanese to come to terms with their historical crimes in Korea and to take accountability for them has strained relations between Japan and South Korea. It is for this same reason that formal relations between Japan and North Korea are, for all intents and purposes, non-existent. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here. Despite the story that Japanese revisionists and propagandists would like to tell, Japan's rule in Korea was far from benevolent. Japan treated Korea as a colony, in much the same way that the European colonial powers had treated their overseas holdings. Japan's colonial policies in Korea have been characterized as somewhat anachronistic, but I believe that a comparison can be made to British rule in Ireland during roughly the same time period. Uh, admittedly, I'm basing this on my limited knowledge of Irish history. However, like Ireland, Korea should have been considered a fully-fledged nation by the standards of the time. It possessed a standardized language, a common culture and ethnicity, a recent tradition of independent statehood, internationally recognized territorial boundaries, and so on. It was because of Korea's relatively advanced development as a nation at the time of its annexation, and partially because of its proximity to Japan, that the Japanese went to great lengths to assimilate the Korean people into Japanese culture, or, in other words, to Japanize them. They sought to accomplish this, for instance, by instituting a strong central colonial administration in the place of the old government apparatus, which would be staffed primarily by Japanese rather than Korean elites. The education system, previously based on the Chinese model, was overhauled along the lines of a more westernized Japanese model. As time went on, these Japanizing efforts only became more obtrusive. The practice of Shinto, the state religion of Japan, was enforced, and increasingly harsh restrictions were placed on the use of the Korean language 
to the point where the majority of Koreans were coerced into adopting Japanese names. These massively unpopular policies naturally provoked resistance from the Korean people. The first rebellion of Koreans against Japanese occupation took place in 1894, concurrent with the Sino-Japanese War. During the Donghak Peasant Rebellion, as it was called, anywhere from 25 to 200,000 Korean peasants rose up in arms against the Japanese occupiers, only for the rebellion to be swiftly and brutally repressed. When Korea became a Japanese protectorate in 1905, the Korean army became the nucleus of armed resistance. In response, the Korean army was officially disbanded two years later. Later that same year, the remnants of this army, some 10,000 soldiers, marched on Seoul with the intention of liberating the city from the Japanese, but were soundly defeated. The soldiers who remained joined together with civilian militia to form partisan bands known as the Righteous Armies. For the next two years, the Righteous Armies fought against the Japanese in the countryside before finally being forced north across the border into Manchuria and the Russian Far East. There, they created bases from which they launched the odd raid across the border, but for the most part, these proved largely ineffectual. For all intents and purposes, the armed resistance to Japanese occupation within Korea itself ended around the time that Korea was formally annexed by Japan in 1910. As a result, the task of resisting Japanese occupation fell to Korean nationalists who found themselves living abroad after having fled the country. We'll have a lot more to say about these people going forward. The Japanese colonial officials believed, perhaps some genuinely so, that their mission was to drag backwards Korea into the light of modern civilization. Their aforementioned Japanization campaigns were just one aspect of these ongoing efforts. Another way in which the Japanese hoped to accomplish this was through a series of economic reforms and industrialization efforts. Pre-colonial Korean society was a highly stratified one. By this, I mean Korean society consisted of an overwhelming mass of peasant subsistence farmers at the bottom of the social ladder, and a very small strata of extremely wealthy elites at the top. Unlike in Europe, there was nothing that meaningfully resembled a middle class. The arrival of the Japanese did not alter this state of affairs in a, any fundamental way, at least at first. The colonial authorities initially found it more expedient to leave Korea's pre-existing class structure more or less intact, and to co-opt the Korean elites, known as the Yangban, into their administration. Now, historically, these aristocrats had been, for lack of a better phrase, a progressive force in Korean society. They were responsible for artistic and cultural developments within the country, for managing the affairs of state, and for fostering a strong and enduring scholarly tradition. In the 1920s, after the Japanese takeover, the same strata of elites took on a variety of roles. They became businessmen, intellectuals, and so on. However, there was a dark side to this development. A great many of this new generation of elites were already, or would go on to become, collaborators with the Japanese. Before we move on, I'd like to say a brief word about the Korean economy. The pre-colonial economy of Korea can be characterized as medieval, or to use a more neutral term, agrarian. The vast majority of the Korean population were subsistence farmers, and agriculture made up well over 90% of the country's economic activity, at the time of its annexation. After 1910, the Japanese took very active measures to develop the Korean economy. This was done first and foremost with the intention of benefiting Japan. Nearly all major industries were dominated by Japanese companies, and Japanese landlords owned nearly all the land. That said, these economic reforms did have pronounced effects on Korea itself. These changes can be expressed with a few statistics. 
Agriculture, for instance, went from comprising 90% of the economy in 1910 to just about 40% in 1945. Industry's proportion of the economic activity in Korea rose from just about 3% in 1910 to almost 43% in 1945. Total economic production, including both industry and agriculture, increased eightfold in this period. Meanwhile, Korea's population more than doubled, from 13 million in 1910 to over 26 million in 1945. The results of the First World War buoyed Korean hopes for independence. The war had more or less upended the former world order, and in 1919, representatives of the victorious Allied powers convened in Paris to determine the fate of the post-war world. In Korea itself, a nationwide protest of the Korean people against Japanese occupation, known as the March 1st movement, broke out. It is estimated that approximately 2 million Korean civilians engaged in demonstrations across the country, with the largest protest occurring in Seoul. A group of 33 activist leaders drafted a Declaration of Independence for Korea, which read, in part, quote, We herewith proclaim the independence of Korea and the liberty of the Korean people. This we proclaim to all the nations of the world in witness of human equality. This we proclaim to our descendants so that they may enjoy in perpetuity their inherent right to nationhood. Inasmuch as this proclamation originates from our 5,000-year history, inasmuch as it springs from the loyalty of 20 million people, inasmuch as it affirms our yearning for the advancement of everlasting liberty, inasmuch as it expresses our desire to take part in the global reform rooted in human consciousness, it is the solemn will of heaven, the great tide of our age, and a just act necessary for the coexistence of all humankind. Therefore, no power in this world can obstruct or suppress it." End quote. Ultimately, however, the movement was brutally suppressed by Japanese authorities. Historians estimate that 7,500 were killed, 16,000 were wounded, and 46,000 were arrested. Meanwhile, hundreds of Korean activists were forced to flee the country. Some of these activists ended up in Shanghai, China, where they formed a provisional government for Korea in April 1919. This provisional government would be a precursor to the government of South Korea, although historians dispute whether or not a direct line of succession can be drawn between the two entities. Members of this provisional government also participated in the Paris Peace Conference, hoping to instrumentalize American President Woodrow Wilson's rhetoric of national self-determination in order to advance their goal. The status of Japan as one of the principal allied powers, however, precluded any serious consideration of independence for Korea by the Allies. Around this time, the thousands of Koreans who were living abroad in Siberia and Manchuria came under the influence of the Russian Bolsheviks, who had overthrown the Russian provisional government in 1917. A woman named Alexandra Kim is often credited with being the first Korean communist, having joined the Bolshevik party a year before the Russian Revolution. Following the revolution, Bolshevik party leader Vladimir Lenin dispatched Kim to Siberia to organize among the Korean population who lived there. In 1918, she helped to establish the Korean Socialist Party before being captured and executed by white Russian forces later that year. Already, we have seen the genesis of the left-right divide within the Korean National Liberation Movement. On the left, there were those who were influenced by communism, either in its Soviet Russian or Chinese forms, and on the right, there were those who ascribed to an ideology which blended ideas from Western liberalism with traditional Korean Confucian conservatism. The left and right wings of this movement often failed to maintain unity even amongst themselves. The left was initially split between Koreans living in Russia, the so-called Irkutsk group, and Koreans living in China, the so-called Shanghai group. 
The right wing of the movement, represented initially by the Korean Provisional Government founded in 1919, had splintered apart by 1921. In 1925, the president of the government in exile, Syngman Rhee, was impeached on charges of corruption. Rhee, however, declared his removal from office to be illegitimate and continued to claim the office of president. Although the interwar period afforded foreign powers scarce few opportunities to support the Korean independence movement, this period, especially from 1932 onwards, was highly important in said movement's evolution. If you'll recall from a bit earlier, armed resistance to Japanese rule within Korea itself largely subsided around the time that the country was formally annexed by Japan in 1910. Hundreds of rebels who managed to avoid death or capture fled north into Siberia and Manchuria. In Manchuria, which is today more often referred to as northeastern China, the Koreans' presence was tolerated by local authorities, more or less, and the rebels utilized the region as a base from which to carry out raids against the Japanese occupiers in Korea. In 1931, the Japanese, under fabricated pretenses, invaded Manchuria and subsequently established a puppet state called Manchukuo. Immediately, the Japanese and their local collaborators were met with widespread resistance. Anti-Japanese partisans in Manchuria were an eclectic group, and the Koreans, who had spent the last two decades fighting the Japanese, naturally formed an integral component to anti-Japanese resistance in Manchuria. It was from this crucible that much of the leadership of the future North Korea was formed. Bruce Cummings, who argues that the anti-Japanese resistance of Koreans in Manchuria should be considered the true origin of the Korean War, provides the following explanation, quote, when Korean agitators took up arms against the new puppet state of Manchukuo, they found themselves ensnared by pitiless overlords, a complex mix of Korean immigrants and a local Chinese population filled with ethnic hatred, yielding a daily bread of life-and-death risks, dubious if not foolhardy odds, bad moral choices and worse moral choices. The political milieu of bleak choices between the extremes of right and left inhabited most of Europe and East Asia during the Great Depression, and it was in this milieu that the North Korean leadership came of age and established itself. Korean resistors faced militarists capable of almost anything, and quickly concluded that violent struggle was the only viable option." End quote. We will have more to say about this particular chapter in the history of the Korean independence movement later in this episode. As I said, there were f few opportunities for foreign powers to assist the Korean independence movement during this time. The two powers that stood to gain the most from assisting the Koreans at this time were the Republic of China and the Soviet Union. During this period, both countries were suffering from internal struggles, which prevented either from attempting to challenge Japanese hegemony over East Asia in any meaningful way. As for the United States, up until the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Americans wished to avoid antagonizing Japan, something that supporting the Korean cause would have inevitably resulted in. However, this international state of affairs changed drastically with the outbreak of the Second World War. In the face of Japanese aggression, both the United States and the Soviet Union reconfigured their respective foreign policies vis-a-vis -vis Korea. Soviet decision-makers had long figured that control over the Korean Peninsula would afford the USSR a great strategic advantage over hostile powers in the region, principally Japan. Russian interest in Korea goes back to the years leading up to the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 and 1905, but their defeat in that conflict forced the Russian state to reorient its foreign policy to the West. The impending defeat of Germany in 1945 allowed the Soviet foreign policy apparatus to turn its attention to the Far East once more. 
On the American side of things, American indifference to the plight of the Koreans also dates back to the days of the Russo-Japanese War. The negotiations which brought that conflict to an end had been facilitated by the Americans, who readily, almost enthusiastically, acquiesced to Japanese domination over Korea. This indifference persisted through World War I and well into the interwar period, when, as I mentioned earlier, the United States was careful to avoid upsetting the balance of power in East Asia. American entry into World War II changed the entire strategic calculus. Gone were the days of isolationism and appeasement. Many American policymakers, including the current president, Franklin Roosevelt, wished for the United States to more forcefully exercise its influence in building a new international order for the post-war world. Now, American foreign policy in Asia and the Pacific was driven by a powerful desire to defeat Japan and dismantle its empire, of which Korea was a part. The question of Korea was first addressed at an inter-allied conference held in the Egyptian city of Cairo, at which American President Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Chinese Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek deliberated the fate of Asia in the post-war period. Roosevelt envisioned the creation of an independent and democratic Korean Republic free completely from Japanese rule. However, he held certain reservations regarding the ability of the Koreans to effectively organize a functioning government. Pointing to the factionalism rife within the Korean independence movement and their seeming lack of popular support within the country itself, Roosevelt believed that the fledgling nation would require a period of political tutelage before it could effectively exercise its right to national self-determination. Thus, Roosevelt proposed that an international trusteeship be given jurisdiction over the nation's internal affairs until such time that Korea was deemed ready for independence. Roosevelt's suggestion was not entirely unprecedented. Similar proposals had been made regarding Axis-controlled territories throughout the world. However, the prospect of an international trusteeship over Korea in particular did not seem to sit well with the two other statesmen present at the conference. Churchill was wary of the implications that such an action would have for the vast network of colonies unto which the United Kingdom still held. As for Chang, he was of the belief that an international trusteeship would make his ability to reassert Chinese influence on Korea more difficult. Dated December 1st, 1943, the Cairo Declaration pledged the support of all three parties to an independent Korea, albeit in due course. The course of the war would prove that the cooperation of Britain and China were less necessary to advance the aim of Korean independence than the Soviet Union. At another Allied conference held in Tehran, Iran, later that year, Roosevelt ran the idea of an international trusteeship over Korea by Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin, who agreed with the American president's assessment. Two years later, the Big Three, that is, Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt, met once more at a conference in Yalta in the Soviet Union. With the surrender of the German Reich seemingly inevitable, the Allied leaders' attention shifted to the matter of ending the war in Asia and the Pacific. Roosevelt wished for Soviet assistance in this endeavor, as the Soviets were better positioned to invade Japan's territorial holdings on mainland Asia. At this conference, Stalin agreed to mobilize his army against Japan following Germany's surrender. A preliminary plan was made for Soviet forces to invade Manchuria and to push south into Korea while the Americans were given the daunting task of invading the Japanese home islands. In order to ensure Stalin's cooperation, Roosevelt had signed a secret agreement with him which would cede the Kuril Islands and the southern half of Sakhalin Island to the USSR, and which would grant the Soviets nebulous special privileges in northeast China. 
Already, some in the American camp expressed their anxiety at the prospect of Soviet territorial aggrandizement in Northeast Asia. In short, they had their doubts that the Soviets would be content with their aforementioned special privileges. As early as 1943, a State Department report had reached this conclusion, quote, Korea may appear to offer a tempting opportunity for Stalin to strengthen the economic resources of the Soviet Far East, to acquire warm water ports, and to occupy a domineering strategic position in relation to both China and Japan. A Soviet occupation of Korea would create an entirely new strategic situation in the Far East, and repercussions with China and Japan may be far-reaching." General Douglas MacArthur, commander of U.S. forces in the Pacific, also gave voice to similar fears in 1945, stating, quote, They would want all of Manchuria, Korea, and possibly parts of northern China. The seizure of territory is inevitable, but the United States must insist that Russia pay her way by invading Manchuria at the earliest possible date after the defeat of Germany, end quote. With the Soviets poised to take Korea, the prospects of Roosevelt's proposed international trusteeship fell into doubt, with Stalin only providing vague assurances that he would agree to such an arrangement. The final Allied conference of the war was held at Potsdam, near Berlin, in July 1945. The situation had changed drastically in the two months following Germany's surrender. Notably, a previous member of the Big Three was not in attendance. American President Franklin Roosevelt had died of a cerebral hemorrhage on April 12th. He was replaced by his successor, former Vice President Harry Truman. Stalin informed Truman that the Red Army would be prepared to launch its invasion of Manchuria by mid-August. During the course of the conference, there was another shocking revelation. President Truman was first informed of a new development back home. The Manhattan Project, a clandestine research project, had successfully developed an atomic bomb. This was a weapon of mass destruction, the very first of its kind, capable of leveling an entire city in a matter of seconds. Truman was told that the atomic bomb would be ready to use against Japan in a matter of days. This development once again changed the entire strategic equation. If deployed against Japan, it could compel their surrender and circumvent the need for an invasion of the home islands, which would have cost the Americans a great deal of manpower and materiel. Moreover, a Soviet invasion of Manchuria and Korea would also be rendered unnecessary. The important thing to keep in mind here is that Truman's relationship with Stalin was far more adversarial than Roosevelt's had been. It is entirely possible that by this point, Truman had already conceptualized the basis for the Truman Doctrine, the doctrine that would essentially dictate American foreign policy decisions for the next several decades. Essentially, this meant that in the future, American foreign policy would be driven by a desire to halt the spread of Soviet influence, which at this point was essentially synonymous with communism. Essentially, the development of the atomic bomb provided Truman with an opportunity to freeze Stalin out of Korea entirely. Truman debated with Churchill as to whether or not he should inform Stalin of this new development, with the assumption in mind that if Stalin were to know of the bomb, he might greatly expedite his planned invasion of Manchuria. Eventually, Truman did decide to tell his ostensible ally about the atomic bomb, but only did so in the vaguest possible terms, informing the Soviet premier that the Americans had acquired, quote, a new weapon of unusual destructive force, end quote. Stalin replied by stating his hope that the Americans would make good use of this weapon against their mutual adversary. In reality, Stalin was already aware of the atomic bomb, having received intelligence regarding the Manhattan Project before even President Truman had known of its existence. Still, Stalin reacted to news of the atomic bomb just as Truman and Churchill had feared he would. 
he now ordered the Red Army to prepare for an invasion of Manchuria by the second week of August. On August 6th, an atomic bomb was dropped on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. Two days later, the Soviet Union declared war on Japan, and the Red Army crossed the border into Manchuria. The Soviet advance through Manchuria was rapid, more so than perhaps even the Soviets themselves had anticipated. Within a week, they occupied nearly all of northeastern China, and their forces were poised to enter Korea. Meanwhile, on August 9th, the Americans dropped a second atomic bomb on the city of Nagasaki. On the 15th of that month, Japanese Emperor Hirohito announced Japan's unconditional surrender to the Allied powers. By this juncture, Soviet forces had secured key strategic points in the northern part of the Korean Peninsula. While the Americans were scrambling to land troops of their own on the Korean Peninsula, under the assumption that allowing the Soviets to occupy the entire peninsula would render moot any talk of a joint Allied trusteeship. In the hopes of staving off such a possibility, the Americans reached out to the Soviets to offer them a deal to divide the peninsula between zones of American and Soviet occupation as a temporary measure. Before such a proposal could be made, the Americans first had to decide where exactly they would place the line that would demarcate the two zones. This task fell to two young army officers, Charles Bonesteel and Dean Rusk. Forced to make such an important decision with such little time, the two men were under immense pressure. Using only a map issued by National Geographic, Bonesteel and Rusk decided on the 38th parallel, a line of longitude that divided the Korean Peninsula roughly in half between north and south. It is unlikely at this time that either man could have foreseen exactly how consequential their decision would be on the course of Korean history, and that of the world more broadly. While the two halves of the country were more or less equal in terms of land area, they were deeply unequal in other respects. To begin with, the southern portion of the country contained the capital city of Seoul, as well as two-thirds of the entire country's population. However, this arrangement was not entirely unfavorable to the Soviets, as the north contained the bulk of the country's heavy industry, as well as several warm-water ports. Still, the Americans feared the possibility that the Soviets might reject their proposal. It is worth bearing in mind that at this time, the Americans had yet to land any troops on the peninsula, while the Soviets had already done so and were steadily advancing southward. The 38th parallel was further north than the Americans could have reasonably hoped to reach in the event that Stalin rejected their proposal. But, to their great relief, Stalin agreed. Why did Stalin agree to this arrangement when he was in position to seize the entire peninsula for himself? Simply put, at this time, territorial aggrandizement was not Stalin's primary concern, contrary to popular belief. With the Americans still fully mobilized for war, and with a monopoly on the power of the atom bomb at the moment, at least, Stalin felt that there was no sense in trying to make an issue out of Korea. His priorities lay elsewhere, principally with ensuring that Japanese influence in the region was completely dismantled. For the most part, Stalin was simply content having avenged Russia's defeat in the Russo-Japanese War 40 years prior. In a radio address delivered on September 2nd, he declared, quote, The defeat of Russian troops in the Russo-Japanese War left grave memories in the minds of our people. It fell as a dark stain on our country. Our people trusted and awaited the day when Japan would be routed and the stain would be wiped out. For 40 years, we, the men of the older generation, have waited for this day. And now this day has finally come. End quote. From the time that they first entered the country, the Soviets sought to portray themselves as friends of the Korean people and allies in their struggle against the Japanese Empire. A proclamation issued by Field Marshal Alexander Vasilyevsky, the recently appointed commander-in-chief of Soviet forces in the Far East, issued an emotional appeal to the Korean people 
in advance of the Soviet invasion of Manchuria. It reads as follows, quote, The dark night of slavery over the land of Korea has lasted for long decades, and at last the hour of liberation has come. The Red Army, together with the troops of the Allied armies, has utterly destroyed the armies of Hitler's Germany, the permanent ally of Japan. Now the turn of Japan has come. Koreans, rise for a holy war against your oppressors. Remember, Koreans, that we have a common enemy, the Japanese. Know that we will help you as a friend in the struggle for your liberation from Japanese oppression. End quote. On the ground, however, the Soviet occupation of Korea did not get off to a promising start. The soldiers sent by Moscow to carry out the occupation were rowdy and undisciplined. Soon after their arrival, there were numerous reports of Red Army soldiers engaging in rape and pillage throughout the Soviet zone. Stalin did not allow this state of affairs to persist for very long. He issued a stern order to Vasilyevsky to enforce proper discipline. They were to conduct themselves respectfully so as not to offend the local populace. Within a month, the violence subsided, and the first groups of Soviet Koreans arrived in the area to assist with the administration of the Soviet zone. As I mentioned earlier, following the annexation of Korea by Japan in 1910, thousands fled from Korea into the Russian Far East. According to the Soviet census of 1926, some 169,000 Koreans resided in the territories of the Soviet Union, all of whom were granted Soviet citizenship by a 1932 law. During the Great Purge of 1936 to 1938, ethnic Koreans living in the Far East were targeted for mass deportation. This was part of a broader aspect of the purges. In general, ethnic minorities living in the USSR's border regions were deported from these areas on suspicion that they could form a fifth column. In total, over 171,000 Koreans were arrested and deported, with the vast majority being sent to the Kazakh and Uzbek SSRs. These regions had been hit particularly hard by famine in recent years, and the Koreans who were deported there filled the gaps in the workforce that had been left behind by the deceased. Remarkably, thousands of Koreans still live in the modern-day countries of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan to this very day, according to the most recent census data available from these countries. In 1945, these communities of Soviet Koreans in Central Asia provided the Soviet government with a large Korean-speaking population, which they could draw from in order to assist in the civil administration of Soviet-occupied Korea. The first cohorts of Soviet Koreans arrived in Pyongyang in September 1945, at which time they set up the Soviet Civil Administration, or SCA. In these crucial early days, the Soviet Koreans effectively acted as middlemen between the high-ranking Red Army officers in charge of the military government and the Korean population itself. As Japanese authority in Korea began to disintegrate, local self-governing groups known as People's Committees had sprung up across the country. Initially intended to maintain public order in the wake of the Japanese withdrawal, they had quickly evolved into autonomous local governments. Thanks to the efforts of the Soviet Koreans, the People's Committees were co-opted by the military governments and became the basic units of its administration. In spite of their instrumentality to the Soviet military government, or perhaps because of it, these Soviet Koreans were viewed as outsiders by the indigenous Koreans. Seeing as how the majority of them had been born and raised within the borders of the USSR, for many this was the first time they had ever set foot in their home country. In order to give their government a veneer of legitimacy, the Soviets recognized the need to find an indigenous Korean leader to serve as a figurehead. Such an individual proved more difficult to find than was perhaps initially thought. At first, the obvious candidate for this role was a man named Cho Man-sik. A devout Christian, Cho had conscientiously sought to emulate the example of Mahatma Gandhi 
and his principles of nonviolent protest. Cho was one of the most widely admired figures in Korea at the time, and the Soviets hoped to leverage this popularity to appeal to both leftist and more moderate nationalist elements. However, Cho quickly made it apparent that he was not amenable to this, and refused to collaborate with the Soviet authorities. With Cho out of the question, the Soviets looked instead to the leadership of the Korean Communist Party. The most universally popular member of the party was a man named Kim Mu-chong. A native of the northern city of Chongjin, Kim Mu-chong was a veteran of the Chinese Civil War, having fought alongside Mao Zedong in the Long March of 1934 to 1935. He was thought very highly of by his contemporaries, but his association with the Chinese communists tainted him somewhat in the eyes of Moscow. In search of an individual whose loyalty to the USSR was absolute, the Soviet leadership looked to the 88th Rifle Brigade. Also known as the 88th International Brigade, this was a unit of the Red Army formed from the remnants of an anti-Japanese guerrilla force that had fled from Manchuria in 1940. Among the ranks of the 88th was a 33-year-old captain named Kim Il-sung. Kim's origins are shrouded in decades of myth-making, courtesy of both his admirers and his detractors. His admirers portray Kim as a valiant anti-Japanese guerrilla fighter who kept up the resistance against the Japanese for over a decade. His exploits have been made into the stuff of legends, to the point where it is difficult to discern the true history of these events. On the other hand, there have been persistent rumors that Kim was an imposter, that his identity was in some way fraudulent. This is a claim that one will encounter when reading more dated literature on the subject. It is speculated that these rumors were planted by either United States or South Korean intelligence, and they have been largely discredited and are not accepted by most serious historians, though they still linger about to this day. The truth of the matter, as it so often does, lies somewhere in the middle. Kim Il-sung was a significant leader of the anti-Japanese resistance in Manchuria, even if some of the more audacious claims about his actions during this time were later fabrications. As of 1945, however, Kim Il-sung was not a well-known entity within Korea. As Yu Song-chol, a compatriot of Kim's, would later say, quote, I was not quite sure how the Soviets intended to use us in North Korea, but I believed that there was no definite plan. Even at this time, none of us were thinking that Kim Il-sung would become the leader of the new Korea. End quote. Indeed, Kim seemed an unlikely candidate for this role. Nevertheless, the Soviets had taken a keen interest in him. During the summer of 1945, in the run-up to the Soviet invasion of Manchuria, Stalin had ordered Lavrenti Beria, head of Soviet intelligence, to identify potential candidates to serve as a leader of Korea. Beria met with Kim personally and recommended him very highly to Stalin. In an interview conducted in 1984, Soviet Major General Nikolai Lebedev would later recall, quote, Kim Il-sung was soon delivered to us. I thought it odd that he was dressed in a Soviet captain's uniform and that he had an Order of the Red Banner on his chest, while the man who brought him in was dressed as a civilian. The thick-set, round-faced Korean spoke good Russian, but in terms of his political qualifications, he was utterly ignorant. He failed the Marxism-Leninism exam completely. But we had no other choice. We could not just go to Stalin and report to him that his candidate wasn't qualified. We had to create a general secretary from what we were given. End quote. In mid-October, a mass rally was held in Pyongyang with the intention of introducing Kim to the people that he would soon lead. Cho Man-sik had even been persuaded to appear alongside Kim in order to lend him a degree of credibility. General Lebedev was the first to speak, 
praising Kim as a, quote, national hero and outstanding guerrilla leader, end quote. Cho Men Sik's personal secretary, Oh Young Jin, recorded the crowd's reaction when Kim was first brought on stage, quote, The people had anticipated a gray-haired veteran patriot, but what they saw was a young man of about 30, with a manuscript approaching the microphone. His complexion was slightly dark, and he had a haircut like a Chinese waiter. The crowd cried out, He is a fake! All the people who had gathered upon the athletic field felt an electrifying sense of disgust, disappointment, discontent, and anger. There was, of course, the problem of the age, but there was also the content of his speech, which was so much like those of the other communists, whose monotonous repetitions had worn the people out. End quote. For their part, the Soviets were taken aback by the negative reception that Kim had received, and from this point forward, began to take great pains to build up his public image through propaganda, thus laying the foundations of the cult of personality that would characterize later North Korea. By late autumn 1945, resistance to the Soviet occupation had begun to mount, with the largest manifestation of this occurring on November 23rd of that year. Rioting had broken out in the border town of Sinuju. Led primarily by religious leaders and student activists, the demonstrators demanded an end to Soviet military rule. The authorities cracked down harshly, opening fire on a crowd. 23 were killed and hundreds were wounded. In the days and weeks that followed, a stream of refugees fled the Soviet zone for the south. According to American sources, there were some 2 million of these refugees living in the American occupation zone as of April 1947. The Soviets rationalized that those fleeing their authority were potentially subversive elements anyway, so they made no real effort to stem the tide of refugees to the south. Nevertheless, the outbreak of violence in the Soviet zone was quite concerning to the occupation authorities. Kim Il-sung, now in the capacity of chairman of the Korean Communist Party, concluded that the recent political unrest had been due to the fact that the party still had weak ties to the laboring masses. In response, he engaged in an effort to create a united front, which in practice meant working to subordinate the various local political elements within the Soviet zone to the Communist Party. Meanwhile, on the American side of things, the seeming discontent of the Korean people with the Soviet occupation government raised hopes that Korea would not remain divided for much longer. The first American soldiers landed in Korea on September 8th. Crowds roared in approval as soldiers lowered the Japanese flag and hoisted the stars and stripes in its place. The hopes of the Korean people in the American zone were at first astronomically high, but they would soon become disillusioned when they realized that the Americans were not quite as benevolent as they initially believed them to be. It did not help that the commander of the American occupation forces, General John Hodge, was highly insensitive to the desires of the Korean people and made no secret of it. In the early days of the occupation, the Americans regarded Korea as an afterthought. The main mission of American occupation forces was to disarm the Japanese soldiers who remained in the region and repatriate them back to Japan. However, in this mission, they soon ran into some major issues. The fact of the matter was that the United States did not have sufficient numbers of troops in Korea to maintain public order in the wake of a complete Japanese withdrawal. The Americans soon realized that they would need the cooperation of the Japanese colonial authorities, at least for the time being. At the formal ceremony of surrender, it was announced that the Japanese Governor General, Abe Nobuyuki, would remain in that capacity for the time being. The following day, thousands of outraged Koreans took to the streets of Seoul in protest. Abe was roundly detested by the Koreans as a symbol of colonial oppression. If the Americans were inclined to treat their former oppressors with such leniency, many Koreans asked, where did that leave them? 
Hodge's immediate superior, Douglas MacArthur, wrote him a missive, which stated, quote, For political reasons, it is advisable that you should remove from office immediately Governor General Abe, the chiefs of all the bureaus of the government general, all provincial governors, and all police chiefs, end quote. Hodge complied with this order, but only nominally. As his political advisor, H. Merrill Benninghoff, put it, quote, The removal of Japanese officials is only desirable from the public opinion standpoint, but they must be relieved from office in name only, because there are no qualified Koreans for other than low-ranking positions, either in government or in public utilities or communications, end quote. For the Americans, devolving power into the hands of the Korean people themselves was at this moment inadvisable, due mainly to the fractious nature of Korean politics. American observers identified two main political tendencies within Korea. The first of these was the so-called radical group, comprised of several smaller left-of-center political parties, the most prominent among them being the Communist Party. The other group was the conservative group. This group was composed of well-educated upper-class Koreans. At first, the conservatives seemed promising to the American occupation authorities as potential collaborators. For one, many of them had been educated either in the United States or by Western missionaries active in Korea, and therefore many possessed a working knowledge of the English language. However, this class of people was not popular at all with the masses, not the least because many had collaborated with the Japanese. Still, the hostility of the radical group left the Americans with little choice but to seek an alliance with the conservatives. As I mentioned, Korean politics in that period were quite fractious, notoriously so, leading one American observer to remark, quote, every time two Koreans sit down to eat, they form a new political party, end quote. In fact, only two months into the occupation, there were some 205 political parties active in the South, and these were just the ones that had registered with the government. At this time, there was one group that seemed to enjoy the most broad support, the Korean People's Republic. With the People's Committees forming the basis of its power, the KPR claimed the mantle of Korean nationalism with the motto of a self-reliant and independent state. As a result, the KPR enjoyed the support of both the left-wing and more moderate nationalist elements. Shortly after the Americans landed in Korea, a delegation from the KPR attempted to meet with General Hodge, but he refused to see them. The Americans were thoroughly convinced that the KPR was a communist organization that took directions from Moscow, while the KPR leadership was under the assumption that the American military occupation was meant to be a transitory phase, after which power would be handed over to them. Naturally, tensions began to arise between the People's Republic and the American military government. Regarding the military government as illegitimate, the KPR took on many of the essential functions of the state at a local level, such as public safety, food distribution, and the release of the previous regime's political prisoners. The American military government regarded these activities as subverting their authority. In response, General Archibald Arnold, military governor of Seoul, issued a statement to the Korean people at large, declaring on no uncertain terms that, quote, there is only one government in Korea south of the 38th parallel, and it is the government created in accordance with the orders of General MacArthur and Lieutenant General Hodge, end quote. Shortly thereafter, the KPR published a pamphlet of their own in response. Entitled The Traitors and the Patriots, this pamphlet was a scathing critique of the American military occupation. It singled out General Arnold, condemning his statement as a, quote, grave insult to the Korean people, end quote. It went on to claim that the Korean People's Republic was, quote, the duly constituted organ of the Korean people, end quote. 
By December 1945, Hodge had arrived at the decision that the only advisable course of action was to ban the KPR and the People's Committees. The order came down on December 12th. A crackdown ensued, but did little to alleviate the situation. Many Koreans had been willing to tolerate a brief period of occupation, so long as it remained a strictly temporary state of affairs, and as long as certain material concerns, namely land reform and improved food distribution, were addressed. The military government had indeed seized Japanese-owned land holdings in the country, but it did not immediately turn them over to Koreans. In the meantime, the Americans deliberated amongst themselves what should be done with land in question, but their delay in redistributing this land led many to speculate that they would simply auction it off to the highest bidders, thereby cementing the country's feudal hierarchy rather than dismantling it. As for food distribution, the military government had abolished the price controls on rice, which led to widespread speculation and hoarding, which in turn led to many average Koreans going hungry. The price controls were reinstated in March of the following year, but the military government failed to distribute the stocks of rice effectively, which led to many Koreans receiving half the amount of rice that they had previously received under the Japanese. Dissatisfaction with the military government reached an all-time high, leading one American attorney who was in Korea at the time to conclude, quote, as a result of its handling of the rice problem, the Koreans arrived at a complete loss of faith in the military government, end quote. Exacerbating the political and economic crisis in the American occupation zone was the steady influx of refugees into the South. A report from the U.S. Embassy in Seoul reads in part, quote, The refugee crisis is making living conditions increasingly hard. Three quarters of the population of Korea is now in our hands, and the Koreans are looking to us for a solution to their problems, end quote. With all this going on around them, the Americans themselves were beginning to lose heart. Rank-and-file soldiers were affected by the supply shortages just as much as the Koreans were. Commodities that they had been used to were becoming increasingly scarce. Mutual resentment began to fester between the Americans and the Koreans. As Charles Donnelly, an economic advisor to the army, at, wrote at the time, quote, The Koreans are unwilling to take the time to develop the political and economic know-how. All they want is for the Americans to get out of their country so that they can run it by themselves, end quote. This episode has gone on for quite long enough, so I figured this is as good a place as any to end the narrative for the time being. With the Soviets and Americans facing major difficulties as they settle into their respective roles in the occupation of Korea, the Korean people themselves clearly desired the independence and reunification of their country, but the Cold War mindset beginning to take root among American and Soviet leadership made such a possibility grow ever more distant by the day. But you'll have to tune in again in two weeks to find out what exactly happens next. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else you'd like for me to address, please feel free to email me at perspectivesandhistorypod at gmail.com. That's right, as of now, I can now be reached via this new email address, which reflects the podcast's recent name change. As always, you can also reach me on Twitter or Facebook, neither site has changed, and links to both of which will be in this episode's description. If you like this episode, please consider supporting the show financially via either the show's Patreon page or by the eBay Marketplace. Also, I'd like to once again thank the people at Every for partnering with me, and I'd encourage you once again to check out the app for yourself. The link to their website will be in this episode's description as well. Anyway, that should just about do it, and until two weeks from now, this has been the Perspectives in History podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Will and Connor, signing off. Thank you.